Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Hello, Darren. I'm very well. How are you doing today? <laughs> I like you. Again, we're still trying to match the energy. Is that what we're doing? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I, very good. Well, I'm excellent, Darren. <laughs> I am fantastic. <laughs> Um, but yes, so uh, I, I'm fantastic. We're coming out of our Halloween season here. We're going to be discussing a wonderful movie. It's Gilmero. What Dolphins, a Halloween has been. It has indeed. As we've, we've definitely recorded the episodes ahead of time and know how good those episodes were in hindsight. We are absolutely not filling in and papering over a gap. Um, things but, are different now. I mean, October has just been, I mean, what can you say? Yeah, I mean, uh, October was just crazy. I mean, all that stuff yeah. about the things. It's crazy, all these things happening in the news. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, those clowns up in Washington, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, but uh, yes, so I'm very thrilled. We're actually discussing a fantastic movie uh, today, which is Gilmero de Torres' 2006 classic of international cinema that is Pan's Labyrinth. And we have a spectacular uh, guest here with us today the wonderful jack packard who uh listeners probably know him from absolutely everywhere on the internet i know him as uh the host of the escapist movie podcast which i've been doing for the past year or so so i figured you know we're taking a hiatus there i thought i would ask jack to he's been so generous as a host for the past year i figured i'd, I'd invite him over once as, so we could i could host him uh, how are you jack I'm I'm the best. I'm more fantastic than either of you, clearly. Uh, no, very, very happy to be here. I know when you invited me, you said we do, you know, the top 250, the bottom 250. Take your pick. And I was like, oh, Pan's Labyrinth is on the top 250. I'd, it would be so lovely to talk about a good movie. But on the bottom 250 is the Dungeons and Dragons movie. And it's like, oh, I could do that one, too. But I, I'm happy that we skewed positive because it's always nice to be positive about movies. Yeah, we do. When we always when we when we have a guest, we generally like extend the list. We say, here's the here's the hundred or so movies that we haven't covered yet. And it's always a hundred or so movies because this podcast will never end. Um, the list is constantly <laughs> changing. But like you, you got back and you did say, yeah, maybe Dungeons and Dragons. But you said, yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is the one I would like to talk about. What was it? Why did, why did Pan's Labyrinth jump out at you? What was it that kind of grabbed you? Uh, as you mentioned in the intro, like the the. How, how do you call it? international cinema darling it it was a it was something i had not seen before it uh i had not seen the likes before pen's labyrinth before i saw it i was relatively young when it came out in my you know early 20s and and it's just so evocative rewatching it today was was like going back to high school and just you know cuddling up in my big hoodie and seeing the gore and the fairy tale fantasy mixed together what what is it about dark fantasy, about like horror fairy tales that scratches that itch for us weirdos? We 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 we're, we're like Jack cuz I I I did a few repeats. I was also in high school in my 20s. Uh, <laughs> so I, I identify. Um, but yeah, no, like like this is this is a fascinating movie to talk about, and like it's interesting because this is the only Guillermo del Toro movie, Guillermo del Toro movie that has been on. I will eventually get his first name right. Uh, movie that has been on the two fifty. It is a movie that entered the list kind of when it first premiered and has kind of stayed there. And it's interesting that none of his other films have really made that IMDb list. So you know, obviously movies like, for example, The Devil's Backbone earlier on, Hellboy later on, uh, even The Shape of Water, which I thought might crack this list 
just haven't managed to do so. So, like, I mean, before we start talking about this, what are what's your take on on Del Toro as a director, Jack? Like, were you familiar with him before you saw Pan's Labyrinth? Uh, did you follow him afterwards? Are you a big fan? Do you have strong feelings? Uh, I followed him afterwards. This was uh, Pan's Labyrinth was my introduction to him as a filmmaker. Immediately on board, J- anything he wants to make. After that, actually, it's it's been mostly misses for me. After that, though, I. I will, if I had billions of dollars, if I were the head of the studio, I would keep giving him money to make movies that I don't genuinely enjoy just because I think he's such a unique voice uh, in the medium. But, you know, for example, like Hellboy, yeah, it's all right. Hellboy 2, a little less. The Shape of Water, I actually really disliked a lot of Shape of Water. <laughs> you know why? We never learn why she wants to, to fish. That's the important part. Why does she want the fish <laughs> because the fish said, like listens to her ah, <laughs> fish apparently that apparently she's got a neighbor that listens yeah my dog listened to me and i and i and i never like no matter how tempted i felt i never <laughs> my dog yeah <laughs> like, she has she has a supportive neighbor who listens to her and a support structure at work with a co-worker who also the listens neighbor to her gay she, and the, the co-worker is a woman like i mean i feel like that the options are limited there i'm what i'm saying is she has a support structure in her life already she don't need no fish okay she 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 won't be with a woman or or a gay man but a fish uh, uh-huh. I, I feel uh-huh. it's more like they their consent. Yes. Anyway, yeah, look, yeah. this is a very <laughs> no, strange. Right, right. Yeah, no, no, so, but, absolutely. But but I, I do feel like as a filmmaker, <laughs> the ethics of has... consent within uh, the shape of water. That, this is where we You're want right. to go. I haven't right. seen this the movie, the shape of water so I don't know if those people you, were. You into haven't her. seen the shape of water. I haven't because we only watch movies if we're covering them for the two fifty. That's never fair. Got you do have a life outside of podcasting. Exactly. No, that's very very fair. But but even with something like Hellboy, I'm a big comics fan. I'm a big Mike Mignola fan, uh, and so I was really excited for Hellboy. And a lot of that movie is so striking and so wonderful. Ron Perlman, perfect Hellboy casting. But then the action sequences are a little flat, and you know things don't quite fit how you want them to. And so I feel like as a filmmaker, very very hit or miss. I feel like us losing out on Del Toro's uh, Hobbit series uh is one of the biggest uh empty pieces of my heart ever uh but but no i think he he has such a a unique vision and i think like with pan's labyrinth he was really able to have that small scope that made all of these extraordinary elements pop so vibrantly yeah i think there's a a bit to talk there in terms of delta or because i think the point you made is is a really good one in that i have vaguely similar feelings about Del Toro, uh, even though ironically I get the sense that I slightly like the movies that you dislike more and slightly <laughs> dislike the movies that you like more to bring the balance to this whole podcast thing. But I I do, th- like, Del Toro is a, a director who I love in concept more often than I love in execution. Where I think it's great that there is somebody out there who is this, like, Mexican Hobbit Santa Claus character um, who makes these like fantabulous, uh, you know, sort of like exquisite artisanal movies that are entirely his own, that like play to his own interests in ways that are absolutely fascinating. 
and resonate with a lot of other people in ways that are profound and moving. Like we talk to people who who love The Shape of Water, who who love movies like say The Devil's Backbone, stuff like that. Um, and I generally think they're they're pretty good. Um, like I generally think they're well made. I think they're very effective. You can see the love and affection in there. But I do think that it's it's um you know it's a it's a good thing that he continues to get to make them. Uh, I also and again because there has to be absolute balance here my we missed out on like a pop culture moment uh Guillermo del Toro movie that never got made was his 200 million dollar Mountains of Madness movie starring Tom Cruise tell me you don't want to know what that would look Andrew is staring at the middle distance imagining what that would look like um but yes tell me you don't want to know what that for good or for ill like there would be no blockbuster like that sorry Andrew no 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 I, I, I was um it's difficult to tell if I'm staring into middle distance or just moving <laughs> into the camera where the um, where this, where where my screen is. <laughs> um, That's a fair point. Um, but what about yourself, Andrew? Your, your your kind of takes on on Del Toro as a director. Do you have like have is how many of his movies have you seen? Um, do you have many. an opinion? On I, Are I you saw, aware? Of I saw Hellboy on a plane. Not 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 uh, not not like I saw the movie. Uh, yeah, not Ron Perlman. We no, are sitting opposite no, Ron Perlman. No, nor the character, um, <laughs> Hellboy. Well, um, makeup takes so long that like he just spends the six months. He's afraid of flying. Yeah, he just spends the six months in in makeup. Is what Ron Perlman yeah. does. It's just easier. So that human giant sketch where the guy gets his, his um, like plastic surgery so he can look like the alien from the show that then gets cancelled. <laughs> um, Perfect. The um, yeah, I I I I see I. I've seen this and I've seen Hellboy. I, um, it feels like I'm kind of like familiar with him as a director. So I should have seen more <laughs> of these movies. Like he's always been a name that kind of like, you, 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 you know, you, you kind of know when there's a Guillermo del Toro movie out. Um, so I'd be surprised if that's it, but those are the only ones that are kind of like jumping to my mind. The, the, and I think I saw this one in, in, in in uh, in uni, um, I, I was I, I I was a member of an anarchist society because I'm an anarchist. And, and for, we, we, for for us Americans, what's uni? Oh, university. <laughs> I um, love that. That's the question Jack has. It's, uh, it's <laughs> oh, you're an anarchist. That's great. It's uh, yeah. it, it's <laughs> it's like it's like it's like it's it's like university in the U.S. But it, oh, it's just like college. Well, no, it's it's like high school because you don't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to go. Um, <laughs> but, instead, you just watch Guillermo del Toro. Movie. Right. The, the, um, but uh, what should we call it? Um, yeah, that, I think that was the context. I think I brought along my girlfriend. Either that, or a, a girlfriend at the time. Either that, or or she showed me the movie because she she was big into kind of like world cinema um, when I wasn't. Um, or not, not that I wasn't, but she was much more it exposed wasn't an active, to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I wasn't seeking these things out, and she was. Yeah. Um, well, it is worth like just like just very quickly noting in terms of Pan's Labyrinth because I think that uh, Jack noted that this is a relatively uh, stripped down film. I think its budget was about fifteen thousand or six, sorry, sixteen fifteen million or sixteen million euro because obviously it was shot in Spain. And one of the interesting things <laughs> so about Del Toro as a thousand for a second, is it? Yeah, that's really it's impressive. All on the screen. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, every single cent. Um, but like, what's interesting about Del Toro as a director is that like 
generally when we talk about directors, the trajectory is that you start out like small and then you become big. So you have like Christopher Nolan makes Memento, then he makes Insomnia, then he makes Batman and never looks back, for example. James Cameron makes Piranha, you know, two, and then he makes The Terminator as a tiny budget film. Doesn't he maintain that that wasn't his first movie, kind of? Yes, no, The Terminator is his first movie. There never was a Piranha movie in, in James Cameron's <laughs> filmography. Um, <clears throat> well, to be fair, Del Toro does the exact same thing, except Del Toro cheats and goes with his third movie. Del Toro's first movie is the third movie that he made by his own account. And he hasn't made that many. He keeps cancelling them, so it doesn't really count. J- you feel like he would value James everything. Cameron also disowns Piranha uh, 3 double D. Um, isn't that what it's called? <laughs> Even though he had nothing yeah. to do with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, his producer credit on that. He took a producer. Like it's like Terminator Salvation. They mentioned luring like back Nolan to the franchise with, like, to give the, her... the BVS and all this. Um... Yeah, it's like just show. Oh, sorry, up BVS dodge. Occasionally tells it? Zack. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and occasionally tells Zack Snyder never to watch the theatrical cut of his own movie. It's like something Werner Herzog would say: "You must never watch this." <laughs> you must promise. <laughs> you must never watch your own movies. <laughs> But um, to, to bring it back Sorry. to Del Toro, what's interesting about Del Toro is that he, like, he doesn't have that trajectory. Um, he doesn't start small and then go big. What he does instead is he tends to like alternate between these projects that are studio based um, and franchise based, and then his own more intimate ones. So he starts out doing Kronos, which is this kind of Mexican vampire movie. Then he goes to America and he makes Mimic, um, which is a remarkable uh, movie that exists, definitely exists. Um, he's talked about Mimic as the most traumatic event in his life, and that includes the kidnapping of his own father, kidnapping ransom of his own father that same year. And he said, look, when I look back on these two experiences, which are the most horrific experiences in my life, I know which one of them is worse, because at least I knew what the kidnappers wanted from me. Um, apparently his experience working on Mimic with the Weinstein company was so bad that he basically said, yeah, I now understand what I can do in the studio system and what I can't do. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to continue to work in the studio system and do movies that I enjoy making there. And he's, he's, he's very clear. He's talked to like Mark Kermode and he said he gets very insulted when people talk about one for me, one for them. Because there's as much of him in Blade 2, he says, as there is in Pan's Labyrinth. Um, which I find is a really commendable thing. But he kind of balances the two off one another. So he does The Devil's Backbone, which is a Spanish Civil War ghost movie. Then he does Blade 2 and Hellboy. Then he does Pan's Labyrinth, which is a another Spanish Civil War, possibly fairy tale. Then he goes back and he does like Hellboy 2 and Pacific Rim and stuff. And I find it interesting that he balances those two so well with one another and seems to enjoy doing it just as a kind of a director. But yeah, what about yourself, Jack? So when was the first time that you saw Pan's Labyrinth? Do you remember? Did you see it on release? Did you wait for home video? Did you get swept up in the kind of like press coverage, the the kind of like the publicity around it? Well, what I, was it that drew you to it? I'll, I'll tell you what's weird. Like I, I have his IMDb up and in my head, Pan's Labyrinth came out before Hellboy and before Blade 2 actually, but apparently not uh, because, you know, time means nothing anymore. My my guess is I because I've definitely seen I saw Blade Two in the theater so I've seen Blade Two first then probably Hellboy so I I most likely saw Pan's Labyrinth in the theater we have a lovely independent theater uh, here in Milwaukee uh, so I probably saw it there in the theater was absolutely gobsmacked and blown away but in my head that came first because no one can tell Guillermo what to do. 
Uh, so yeah, I like, you know, we have the, it's, it's uh, called the Oriental theater. It's this giant old school theater with like big golden elephants on the wall and a, a huge stage. And it shows weirdo art house movies. So that's where I saw it for the first time. In fact, uh, these two movie chairs behind me right now, uh, no one can see cause we're not showing the video, but, uh, I have two movie theaters. I can confirm to, to, to listeners that there are two, uh, theater seats behind Jack. Those are, uh, ripped out of the Oriental, uh, theater, uh, and mine now, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so strange. The, like thinking about Pan's Labyrinth to something like Pacific Rim, two incredibly different movies, but still both like hold that joy of filmmaking, in them both, because I think that's the thing that makes Guillermo del Toro such a wonderful director is he genuinely enjoys the craft, which like is also kind of a a, a slight against Pan's Labyrinth, which is like essentially it's a story about how cool stories are, which like definitely like borders on that whole like we're making a movie about how cool it is to make a movie. Every movie. <laughs> so- <laughs> Most yeah. like every movie is about movies we've discovered so, on this so podcast. So many times um, talking about movies, it's all about um, like how hard exactly. it is to make movies Certainly, and how like, people who make movies are geniuses. Um, tend to, are yeah. about making movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's about how hard I work to make this movie that you're enjoying. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think I think that's that's probably why it stuck with me as a creative person. You see, you see a story about how wonderful it is to tell stories and get lost in stories because the world's really hard sometimes, and and that's that's what sticks with you. Uh, so that was probably my takeaway: is oh yes, it is so hard in the world, but it's so lovely to get lost in a story. Uh, but yeah, and that you're never too old for that nonsense. I like that kind of um, message as 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 somebody who who doesn't want to who is never too old for that nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but that's where it gets a little muddy. I guess we won't get into no, spoiler no, no. territories yet. Yeah. <laughs> that's where it gets a little bit muddy. But you know, sometimes you do have to grow up. Uh, I guess is the moral. But yeah, so it's uh, it's wow. I'm trying to I'm trying to like go back in my own brain now. Like Hellboy, like, oh, yeah, Hellboy was fun. We should see his weirdo movie. Maybe I saw it without even knowing it was him. But <laughs> I mean, that, that, that tends to happen. Like, I mean, I, I, like, I like Hellboy. I actually, like, again, ironically, I prefer Hellboy 2 to Hellboy. But I, I <laughs> yeah. to continue the trend what, of disagreeing slightly with Jack 2 that you saw when I was watching Crossroads? Yes, it was. So, yes, this is a story. I think we told this before, but basically, so when we were teenagers, I was a I was a very developed teenager in some ways, in that I had like hair on my chin and various other parts of my anatomy. I had a ponytail as well. What? Listeners can close and imagine Darren with his leather jacket, ponytail, and goatee. I refuse. So we decided we were. It's probably that's the safest option. Um, but we, we, you know, in Sligo, we were growing up, there was a cinema and we would go to the cinema every Friday night. And then afterwards we did pizza. And then afterwards other people would continue and, and engage in other activities. Um, but Fight the we would townies. go and see the new movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, primarily <laughs> what it was. <laughs> I have the, um, uh, illicit drinking kind of like in, in, yeah. in the park. In a playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in a yeah, park or yeah, playground. Yeah. It's always... The wonders of growing up in rural Ireland. Exactly. Like my my um, parents knew the bishop and the, the, the park where everyone would drink was just like within view of the bishop's um, kind of mansion or whatever. He would just tell them. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. 
the bishop was a he narc. Tell him everything, um, though, which is good. <laughs> which he appreciates. Yeah. It's good to have a cool bishop. Um, but what I will say is, so yeah, no, the, the story is basically, so we decided we were going to the cinema, we decided we were going to see Blade 2, because it's it's a vampire movie with Wesley Snipes in 2002. It's going to be cool. There's going to be lots of, co- it has the guy from Bross in it as well, so it's going to be great, right? So I go up to the, the ticket stand, and I, I put my money down, I'm like, I would like to take uh, one ticket, one of your finest tickets to go and see Blade 2. And the guy that's at the counter is like, yeah, my job's probably not worth asking this kid for ID, so yeah, take your ticket and go. And then whoever's next goes up, and they're like, I would like one ticket to go and see Blade 2 and he's like you're not you're not 18 or 15 or whatever the certificate was here and they're like uh, uh, crossroads and so of the gang of us of about 11 it ends up everybody after me ends up with tickets to crossroads <laughs> I could have and- I could have gone to Blade 2 I didn't want to <laughs> like they, they oh, sure. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go with my friend Darren and and um, and like one other yeah, guy because there wasn't when, there was when, a big argument. When, when there's a crowd of girls who are going to see Crossroads. Of the, like, were there girls going with us at that point? Yeah, yeah there I, were. We were very young. Okay. I think okay. so. Was, well, like, you, like, don't, you don't with, want to compete with, with Wesley Snipes when With every retelling. Involved. That's fair. Oh, sorry. <laughs> with every retelling of the story, it's going to change anyway. <laughs> oh, that, that is that is true. Every time you remember something, you rewrite the memory. My My memory of this amounts to it being a bunch of 12 lads. Uh, going to see Crossroads and me having the conversation was like, come on, Darren, go and see Crossroads with us. And I'm like, but I have a ticket to see Blade 2 and I'm like 13 years old. I'm going to see Blade 2. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so so that's that's my my memory or my accounting of this this event anyway. And that yeah. was the correct decision. I <laughs> to tell you. Well, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I think for is, a 13 year old boy wants to see um, Britney Spears in her underpants. Like at, at at that like like for it fe- felt like um and and the internet internet didn't really kind of wasn't so much of a thing back this then. This feels very much like rationalization. It feels very much like it feels a little bit like you're rationalizing. I don't yeah. know what yeah, this if, says about me. I would rather see you know f- cool fights to techno music and vampires dying. I guess that's just me. You know, Wesley Snipes using samurai swords while riding a motorbike. Hell, what more do you want from life? Yes. Hell yes. Like, but sorry, this has turned into a tangent sorry, on a tangent on a friend. tangent. No, no, no. Um, like, what I, like doing research for this, and, and again, it, I'm sorry for dragging us down the Del Toro. We're never going to talk about Del Toro again unless he makes a movie that makes the list. But I, like, so much of his backstory is absolutely fascinating. Um, so like, for example, like when he was five, there's video recording his family made of him requesting a Christmas present of a mandrake root. Uh, which comes back into play in this movie here, for the purposes of black magic. Um, His mother, an amateur poet who read tarot cards, was charmed. His father, Federico, a businessman, whom Del Toro describes fondly as the most unimaginative person on earth, was confounded. Um, When he started school, his father won the Mexican National Lottery. He built a Chrysler dealership. And Del Toro then used the money that he got to build a gothic menagerie. Hundreds of snakes, a crow, white wraps... Sometimes right, white rats sometimes snuggled with in bed. He kept a family photograph. He'd wear makeup. He'd disguise himself as an old woman rotting in bed. Um, he studied then in college. And he basically kind of went on and he would he worked in Mexican cinema as a makeup artist and as a special effects artist. Um, and he like credits like Ridley Scott's Alien, which we talked about last week, as being one that inspired him. Uh, movies like The Thing, movies like The Fly. 
Um, and he said basically that like he would get calls where it would be like, uh, Del Toro, we need a monster for Tuesday and it's Friday. And he would basically rush off and kind of create these kind of gothic monsters. And when he was a kid, he would do things like he would have ideas. And again, this is something that feels like it's very true to the director Del Toro became based on anybody who follows the one million projects Del Toro is attached to every year of which zero happen. But as a kid, he would say, I have this idea for a great novel I'm going to write. And he'd be like, okay, yeah, but I I want to illustrate it first. Like, I need the pictures and then I can write to the pictures. So he would illustrate 20 or 30 pictures that would, like, be for inside the novel he was going to write. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of it, he would discover, oh, I've actually, uh, I've got everything that I wanted out of this project. I don't need to actually write the novel. Um, Which kind of feels very much with how he would carry on. Like, a fascinating, fascinating um, director, uh, just in terms of kind of, like, uh, Hollywood history and production. But okay, with that in mind, then I think we're ready to kind of jump into the spoiler zone. So three questions to get us started here. So Jack, mm-hmm. do you think that Pan's Labyrinth is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Absolutely. With, without a doubt, because of how unique it is, not only in its general setup, this fairy tale horror general setup, but also from a very unique world perspective, from a very unique character perspective. Most of the story is told from people who are severely underclass, and that's a, a very unique thing to find in cinema. And I mean, it's worth noting, this is a truly international production. It's a Mexican director making a movie in Spain about the Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. And he's talked about how, like, when he pitched this idea around Hollywood, because he was, again, coming off the back of, as you mentioned, like Blade 2 and Hellboy, there was, like, studio interest. American studios were very interested in this. They're like, this could be an awards fair darling. Uh, Will you take our money? We will give you double or triple whatever you will make, like whatever you will get from the European studios to make this. And he said, no, I'm not going to take American movie money to make this because you will ask me to like, and he jokes like they wouldn't just ask me to change the ending of this movie. They would ask me to change the start of this movie, the opening image of this movie uh, without getting too spoiler or too specific. And like he talks about how like when he took meetings, it was like, oh, they'd want John Hurt to play like the, the Swiss doctor or something like that in this movie. They'd want Sigourney Weaver to play the schoolmistress or something like that. And he was like, no, I, I I will happily like take the money that I can get from these European investors and make the money in as make the movie in Spain. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that that's kind of interesting in terms of positioning it as like an international film as well. Like what how poorly does that talk to the American movie system where like you have filmmakers literally like saying absolutely not. I will take significantly less money so you all don't <laughs> with it. <laughs> Well, I think he described he didn't want it to become, and he quotes here, a Euro trash production. Uh, Like, Del Toro is a fantastic storyteller, along with the, you know, at least I knew what the kidnappers wanted line. Um, But sorry, Andrew. Yeah, no, it's it's a frequently told story. And, And like what people often say is that in the kind of studio system, there are these executives. And if they don't say anything and if they don't give a note, like, why are they there? So they feel like they have to um, justify, justify their, their existence by, you know, changing the movie in some way and saying, that was me. Um, <laughs> I did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You see how valuable I am. Like on that project, I was able to, to like 10x, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, my favorite one is I think when we talked about Seven. Seven has my favorite executive note ever, where like the en- the ending of Seven, and again we're going to be very very deep spoilery, is rather downbeat and grim, involving one of the central characters, uh, and it involves the kidnapping of a key character's like wife. Mm-hmm. And apparently, while when Fincher was like discussing this in the studio, one of the executives put his hands up and he's like, I don't, I got a counter pitch for you. What if at the end he gets a delivery and he opens the delivery box and inside the box is the television and on the television is his wife and he's got to save her before time runs out. Yeah, that was the pitch. That was the studio pitch. That was the note. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love how awful they are. Like for however awful you think they are, they are so much worse. Uh Yeah, like it's a a portable TV. And it has clearly yeah, <laughs> with batteries, yeah, yeah, and it has a satellite kind of signal that it, that's connected to like he's taken over Channel Five. <laughs> he's hijacked it. Yeah. <laughs> what if what if this is all, what if he's also the Riddler and this is a Batman movie? Yeah. Um, and somewhere Matt Reeves is like, I'm taking notes. Uh, but Andrew, what about yourself? What, do you think this is one of the 250 greatest movies? Well, they, they were they were thinking about like eight and nine. As well, <laughs> like they, they're kind of planning yeah, ahead for Yeah, you gotta, yeah, you gotta build the universe. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> what's gonna call it? Um, yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I would, I would agree. I, th- I think this is beautiful. I, I think it's kind of Guillermo, kind of ad- ad- like, like you notice it in his, his other movies. And I'm speaking from a point of ignorance, but watching like um, um, Hellboy, I almost said Old Boy. Um, there, there is kind of nothing like it either, um, and and there, there, the, I think the, the Oscars were were um, well earned. Got a first is cinematography, art direction, and um, I think makeup, obviously, yeah, yeah, because there, and and there's so much kind of done in in the makeup, and you can kind of guess that he he's maybe come from that background, but it's also the performances. The way that I I I I know it's kind of like I guess part of the cinematography maybe award, but the um some of the blue in this movie is just fantastic, yeah. and um I love the setting, the imaginativeness of it. Yes, yeah, sure, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and um and yeah, I I I I don't know what it is. like I I I I think like a lot of the movies that we've covered on the list, kind of you know foreign language movies. I think it maybe takes a better movie um, to, to to break into to a break list like into this. Two fifty, yeah, to, and well, to break into the mainstream even as well. Like we should note, like this was absolutely, a yeah. ma- and we. We described this as a classic of like world of cinema or international cinema um, or foreign cinema at the risk of sounding, you know, kind of like very American centric, non Irish. Uh, you need cinema. to have yeah, me I mean, say yeah. that because then I like the American <laughs> asshole says that. Yeah, some no. other country made that movie. <laughs> oh, no, don't, don't worry. Last week we talked about Alien, which was a foreign film as well. I mean, as long as we're not talking about I Went Down or Taffin, it's all foreign cinema as far as we're concerned. Um but no, like, it is, like, at the time of its release, it was, like, the fifth highest grossing non-English language movie at the American box office. It broke out in a huge way. Um, at the Academy Awards, which which Andrew kind of singled out there, the, 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 the awards that it won, but, like, it picked up six nominations, which made it joint third most nominated movie at the Oscars that year, a non-English language film about the Spanish Civil War and a fantasy, which are not, ju- like, not... Separately, those elements are not things that like tend to garner awards praise, and you put them all in a movie, and somehow it does. Like 
the only other movies that did better, so like Dreamgirls garnered eight nominations. Babel, interestingly, netted seven nominations. And we'll come back Babel to that. Babel was really Babel. popular at the Oscars. Yeah. You don't really kind of like think as much about that. It has that. no footprint. Yeah. yeah. I think like a lot of people liked Dreamgirls, but it's not a movie where I'm like, oh, I haven't seen Dreamgirls. I need to see it. Um, oh. Did I call it Dead Dreamgirls? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's the that's, no, that, that's the James, that's the James Gunn, Gunn reboot. Hey. Yeah, that's the James Gunn Blade <laughs> sequel. Sorry, but like, and then the Queen uh, got six nominations as well with Pan's Labyrinth, and like, obviously, Pan's Labyrinth did not pick up a Best Picture or Best Director nomination. One suspects, in large part, because it was a non-English language production, and those barriers kind of still exist. They still exist today, and they definitely existed back then. And this was two years, I think, before the Oscars expanded their category, because the following year you'd have the controversy with The Dark Knight and Up, mm. where they just expand. And I wonder if, like, two years later, would Pan's Labyrinth have kind of snuck in a Best Picture nomination as well? It did lose um, the best foreign language or the best, yeah, the best foreign language Oscar, um, but to the lives of others, which is interesting because there's well, yeah. a solid argument well, that is, you made. That, that is like such yeah. a stellar movie. It's no, like, well, that that's it. It's hard. It's hard to be ticked off about that. Even <laughs> as, as, however much you love Pan's Labyrinth, you're like, I can, I can see it. Even if, even if you do think Pan's Labyrinth, you're like, not a bad call. Um, but yeah, it was it was a, a kind of a staggering success in, in those terms, and as Andrew mentioned, all the wins that it had as well. Uh, yeah, um, like I probably like I, I I don't think we've talked about the lives of others aside from when it, we've like spoken about, we about what our three colors red. I think it came up on. in yeah. in, in yeah. the um, we did it just the two of us a few years ago, where 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 it came up. But I think like the 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 lives of others is also like really funny. It's 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 maybe as um, uh, sad and as exciting as this, but it, it's 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 also got like tremendous humor in it. But anyway, sorry, <laughs> we're that, doing a head to head. That's what would have that's what would have pushed Pan's Labyrinth over the edge for Andrew. It would have been like if the if the phone did like a tight five. We, yeah, we need like, like a wacky sidekick here. <laughs> maybe one of the fairies farts. Yeah, <laughs> that's Andrew's Andrew's note from the back of the room. That's like the, we're paying you so much for this, Del Toro. You took our money. You're now in. Okay, uh-huh. like one of the fairies like farts, and then it makes another fairy like pass out because it smells so bad. The, we could sell little fairies that fart when you squeeze them. It'd be great. K- kids love cigars. What if what if a frog had a cigar? Oh, just, you know. I love it. I Oh, and then, like, she has to take the cigar out of the frog, and that's what kills the frog, and then it's anti-smoking, too. We can get money yeah. from the government for anti-smoking. Yeah. Boom. Boom. Yeah. Make it happen. And, and also, what if there's a robot spider? Because John Peters is in the room as well. Just putting this um, out there. Just putting yeah. this out there. Big robot spider. It's fantasy, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating that you go back to, like, 2007 and the Oscars, and you could argue that, like, the best foreign film lineup is better than the best picture lineup <laughs> that year, um, which is kind of an like a watershed year in terms of, of cinema as well. Worth noting as well. Um, it was the third Mexican film to be not or third film from a Mexican director to be nominated for the best foreign film within six years mm. after Inurto's Amores Perez and Carrera's The Crime of Father Amaro. Uh, while we're talking about Del Toro, it's worth mentioning as well that when he won the best director Oscar for The Shape of Water, within the previous within the five years leading up to that, four of the Oscars had gone to the three Mexican directors known as the Three Amigos, which are Del Toro, Inyorto, and Coron as well, which is kind of like an interesting kind of snapshot of how long it took this to come around. Like Pan's Labyrinth, Oscar Darling in 2007, 
And then just over 10 years later, you have the crowning achievement of Del Toro and his mates standing there taking Oscars photos of themselves. Uh, for myself, I think absolutely. Um, I think for all the reasons that like Jack and Andrew just outlined, this is a tremendously important, influential film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a landmark moment uh, in world cinema. It is beautifully made. Uh, it is wonderful. Uh, the list needs more movies like this, I would argue, as well. Um, yes. So, yeah, no, no, absolutely uh, and definitely. And then second question, would this be on your own personal 250, Jack? Your own 250 favorite movies that you've ever seen? That's that's where it gets more difficult, only because, like, the soup that is my brain can't remember things enough to make a list that long. Uh, having just watched it, the answer is absolutely. But if you ask me next week, I will have forgotten that I watched it and uh, won't even think about it. But I, th- I think absolutely. I, I'm a sucker for fantasy. And I feel like, you know, that's another thing with Pan's Labyrinth is like it was kind of coming into that fantasy void that was left by Lord of the Rings and and just tossed me into a weird world with weird creatures and i'm happy no matter what the content of the movie is but in this situation you have a very rich story you have amazing acting you have beautiful art direction and then weirdo monsters on top of that so 100 percent this this will pro this if i were to make a list this would easily make my top 100 maybe even higher it's it's up there um, and, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal 250? Um, yeah, I think it would. Like there, there, there's aspects of it that I... No, yeah, it, w- it would. I was going to say there's aspects of it that I'm, I'm not kind of crazy about. But I think it's kind of balanced enough. What I, what I, what I, what I, what I was going to suggest is, is, is the extent to, war, to kind of um, historically or... or, or um, Oh, the debates around whether or not it, it's reflective of reality as opposed to memory, or well, like it doesn't need to be. It's 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 like it it it's a story, but uh, but also like I I suppose like like we'll 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 get into that later on. But it, it I think it it troubled me at points watching it, but I think overall it it, it handled it quite well. Um, but yeah, the, 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 that's that's something we'll get to later. Uh, or hopefully not at all. <laughs> Probably say the wrong thing. Yeah. When we call it the spoiler zone, it's the movie where Andrew spoils your enjoyment of the movie. Oh, um, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm I, 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 no, I, I do that. I, it's normally my role in the podcast, so I'm happy to outsource it this week. No, I do like it. I don't really have uh, problems with it, and it, it would be on my two fifty. That's some damnation <laughs> by faint praise. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it, <laughs> it is a movie with no problems as far as my personal tastes are concerned. I'm like, mm. it it should be allowed to continue to exist. Well, no, I, that wasn't the question, what I mean Andrew. More is like having said like all those great things yeah. about it. Is there some reservation yeah. I have? And no, yes. I, I no, think no, it no, kind of breaks true. through that. Yeah. And for myself, controversially, I would say it's probably not on my own personal 250 uh, because I have seen a lot of movies. I really like this movie. But this is this is where we get to the Del Toro thing that I mentioned, which is like, I love he's like uh, Denny Villeneuve. I love the idea of him. I love the idea that he wanders around and makes movies. Uh, I love the idea that those movies are so particularly his own and they are very, very well made, but they don't. Oh, Jack's just staring at me. Are you, t- you tell me you don't like Denny Villeneuve? <laughs> I can't pronounce Denny his name. Denny Newtown. Dennis Newtown. Yeah. That, that's his... Yeah, Dennis. Denny Velvetino. <laughs> 
Um, but well, we we talked about this. When we talked about it, I think because uh, Velnuve is a two fifty favorite, and every time we talk about his movies, I'm like, yeah, it's a well made movie. It looks absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's perfect. Yeah. It's perfectly structured. Yeah, in yeah. Every way. In yeah. every in single every... way. But oh, Darren doesn't like him. What? Uh, well, no, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Uh, listeners can't see, but he has picked up the He's two chairs from off. the cinema. He's taking <laughs> off his. Uh, Is that it? Okay. Yeah, okay. Anyway, um, technical difficulties. We'll be back in a moment. Hold on. Now, hold, now to be clear, the door, this, or will we record it later? Yeah, we'll, we'll get to post. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. That, to put all this in perspective, the starting point of this conversation was Darren's observation. It is not one this of my Darren's 250 life. favorite movies ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. it's not it's not one of the best movies I have ever personally seen and like carved onto my Mount Olympus of movies myself. I think it is a good movie. I enjoy it. I think there's a lot to recommend Crucify it, and him. I am glad that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's like when I talked about La La Land with Andrew, and I'm like, I really like La La Land. He's like, like it more. Um, oh, I haven't was seen it. Love it. it more unreservedly. That's the Christopher <laughs> Nolan line where they're talking about like, I liked Interstellar. Love it more unreservedly. Um, like, but yeah, okay. So similar to Velnuve, where he is a very talented filmmaker who makes very beautiful films, which I mostly quite enjoy and really <laughs> and like. Um I, I don't necessarily think the Pan's Labyrinth will be on my own personal 250s. I think it I think it's probably my favorite Del Toro. Um I think it's it's certainly his best if you're if you're arguing like if you're making an objective argument for like encapsulating a director in a single mm-hmm. film from their body of work. Mm-hmm. This is the purest distillation of Del Toro. And while I admire that he very candidly says my work on Hellboy or my work on Blade 2 is not lesser, I do think that this is just more him. Uh, this is just like everything that makes him great as a filmmaker and everything that makes him him. Uh, but for me, it it doesn't click perfectly. And when I say it doesn't click perfectly, it's important to emphasize the word perfectly there. It works. I enjoyed watching it. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed watching it again for the podcast. I enjoyed watching it a third time to make sure I was taking notes for this podcast, <laughs> which is a rare occurrence. I don't make time to watch movies that often. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I like it Sorry, a lot. what? <laughs> I do nothing but watch movies. Yeah. That is a fair point. <laughs> like, but, to, um, but, you know, to watch a movie that you choose to watch again, not because you have to do it for work. That's the how, difference. How many times did you watch Cuts? <laughs> no comment. Um, so, J- Jack, would you consider... If listeners have not seen Pan's Labyrinth, mm-hmm. how many times do you watch Cats? Uh, would you pause the podcast? Would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream Cats, uh, stream Pan's Labyrinth to a local device? Damn it, Cats Labyrinth. First yeah. of all, I still have not seen Cats, and it upsets me that I haven't. I keep trying to uh, talk my family into watching it because I want a bad movie night with the family, and they refuse to watch it with me, and I don't want to watch it alone. So you should get them <laughs> tickets to Cats. And there will just be tickets that you've made. But it's for the movie in the sitting room. I love it. Yeah. It's just very Um, fine print. They think they're getting hot Broadway tickets. I think if if a listener of this podcast has not seen Pan's Labyrinth, they should pause it right now and go watch Pan's Labyrinth. And, you know, obviously, like, I am I'm a fantasy person and I'm a horror person. And this just melds right. I'm I'm fantasy horror and daddy issues. Oh, baby, that's (laughs) all I need in a movie. And this has got all three. (laughs) It's infected, baby. 
Oh, yeah. So, no, like for my personal tastes, this just butters up that sweet spot and pan fries the golden brown. So, yes, pause, go watch it. You will enjoy it if you like those three things specifically. I, okay. If you have okay. a I, I, hard, bad that's fantasy. That's <laughs> I, I've got very specifically I've got dad issues and that might be why I like horror I, I'm checking the live podcast feeds and we, two listeners have just paused yes. um, I won't tell you what that percentage is as a whole but Andrew would you recommend pausing the podcast and streaming Pan's Labyrinth to a local device I would I would yeah yeah the, 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 um, just at the point when uh, we say and now without any further ado, but I won't finish saying it. And just before it a bit, they say spoiler zone. Just when the musical sting is playing, just pause, get your finger ready. Um, yeah. Take it from wherever it is and, um, and and get ready to pause the podcast. Because yes, I would Thank recommend. Thank you for that specific image, just, Andrew. Sorry, you do beg your pardon. <laughs> it could be anywhere. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. no, you're absolutely right. Um, Try looking at the end of your knuckle. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the, and Jack is right as well. It's something that we hadn't, hadn't mentioned up to this point. It's a horror movie. And like, I'm not crazy about horror movies. I probably wasn't crazy about fantasy as much as in the last kind of year. Um, but I love how imaginative it is, the, the, the kind of like world it creates. But it is terrifying and it's kind of like gory. Um, and I like a gory movie. I like Robocop after all. Um, Obligatory Robocop reference. Yeah, so once we're almost done into the spoiler zone, yeah, pause. Watch the entire movie. It's on Amazon. Um, it is indeed. It's also on Now TV over in Ireland as well. Oh, actually. I couldn't find it on Now. Um, oh, okay. Oh, and, and here in the states, it's on Netflix. Ah, so American is. Netflix. American I mean, Netflix. Well, again, this is again probably not something to get into to right now. But one of the more interesting aspects of it is the fact that yeah, this arrived in two thousand six, which is around the time that this sort of world cinema became more accessible mm -hmm. to the public as well. Because obviously, DVD had taken over as the primary yeah. format, and DVDs were easier to ship and sell. You didn't have things like worrying about VHS storage and transport; they so weren't like, as bulky. Y tu mama también was kind of big yes. and stuff yeah. like that around the time. As well. um, yeah, and you could like, make I mean, you could make one DVD with multiple. Uh, subtitle tracks uh, that yeah. that reduced shipping and production costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, like, one of the big arguments is that, like, yeah, the, 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 the one of the big arguments for why this was such a big year for foreign film in America was very much the line that, well, it's it's all, foreign films always been great. We just never really were able to watch it as easily as we are now. Um, <laughs> which I kind of find kind of fascinating as, as well. Like, as in terms bad of it, as Miramax. Like um, were <laughs> like well, it, it should be clear. Um, the people as, running Miramax, yeah, as bad as Harvey Weinstein was and is, um, they 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 did some good work, kind of introduced. I know you don't like Amelie, for example, but uh, but like kind of to to Darren to, doesn't like it. Is is Darren a monster? Is I guess what I'm saying. Denis Velvenu, he's all right. Amelie is slightly less than adorable. Get out of town. <laughs> All right. Well, well, I think I think we found like for for our episode covering Amelie, it's just going to be Jack and Andrew. Jack is going to step in as as kind of host for that episode. And you you, you didn't like uh, Cinema Paradiso either. So there, there's yeah. a kind of there's a kind of a there, there's a um a kind of a pattern. Of... Oh, run Lola, run! Too much techno. Get out of here, Darren. Wait, oh, <laughs> run Lola, run is a masterpiece. Thank right, you very right, much. There we go. We can come back then. We're back. 
<laughs> we're, we're, we're back. We won. We won the audience back. Um, but yeah. So okay. So, um, I forgot what I was gonna say. But yeah, in terms of of horror movies as well, just because we're talking about that, like, it. I was kind of wondering because one of the big things that we have on this podcast is like we have been doing the podcast longer than we thought we would, and so we've had to space out our special. How episodes. long did we think so it we would to- take? I- I think we thought it would take five years because we do fifty episodes a year. There's two hundred and fifty movies on the list. We thought five but years would be a bad one hundred. That was fairly early on. That was that was fair. Yeah, so seven that, to be years, fair, at least like most seven years at least. Like most of those ideas, I'm going to pin that one on you. I imagine having this conversation, you're like, yeah, but we should do the bottom one hundred as well. I'm like, yes, Andrew, that's a great idea. <laughs> I'm committed now. <laughs> this is like, hey, Darren. There's already a lot of podcasts covering bad movies. What if we also cover bad movies? Oh, did that. Yeah, that's a hot take. Um, but like, so like we, we have a thing where we are trying to figure out like the horror movies that we will cover and space them out because the horror is very underrepresented in, on the list as compared to other stuff. And so we kind of planned it out. And part of me is wondering now, talking about Pan's Labyrinth in November, literally as far from next Halloween as is well, possible. It's the month of the dead, kind of. The... Oh, that's a fair point. Did, did we blow it? Did, should this have been a, a Halloween episode? No, it's a it's a Hallows. Um, ah. uh, so it's it's the one where like Catholics visit c- cemeteries. That's spooky, um, right? I mean, we I I grew up Catholic. We visited c- cemeteries just for fun. Like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. no, we you do that a, too. But you, you don't need you, a special day. You don't. What? what <laughs> Andrew's family just marking the X's off on the calendar. It's like, yeah, we can go to the cemetery today. Um, <laughs> uh, what 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 happens in November is you get um, uh, time off. What's the word for that? Where you 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 get Jeez. your time in purgatory. Um, oh, okay. uh, oh yes, uh, yes, I remember that. Actually, reduced. Yeah. It's the it's oh. the thing the the, the um, selling um, what was the thing that Martin Luther was against, where people were like turning in like their their kind of silver cutlery and stuff for less time in in purgatory, selling of fuck I can't remember. There is there there is there is indulgences. It's a, it, yes. it, yeah, it's a, it's an indulgence, I think. That... I just like how you were like, you were trying to narrow it down by saying what Martin Luther didn't like, and it's like that just made things more <laughs> difficult to guess. That's a, that's a big list. <laughs> and because Andrew gave us our obligatory RoboCop reference, uh, I will point out that there is actually in the New Yorker profile of Del Toro, they did their own obligatory RoboCop reference by pointing out that he was usually influenced by the work of special effects technicians Stan, Stan Winston and Rob Botton. Excellent. Uh, there we go. That's Beautiful. that's there our gratuitous go. RoboCop reference. You can never have enough RoboCop. Yeah, um, we have an obligatory and and a superfluous and a gratuitous one. Well. But yes, um, and then for myself, absolutely. Um, it is a fantastic movie. If you have not seen Pan's Labyrinth, even if you have, I hadn't seen it in years going back and watching it for this podcast. Uh, so thank you, Jack, for picking it. It was a great opportunity to go back and watch it. Yeah, pause it, stream yeah. it. It is readily available and accessible. So now I hope your your finger is hovering over the button, as Andrew suggested. Oh, hold on for a second. Because we're going to... All right, my finger was out of where it was. <laughs> Listeners are very glad that this is an audio medium. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So, Jack. Darren. Jack. Darren. 
Jack. Andrew. Darren. What is Pan's Labyrinth about for you? So, uh, what is it about for me? Pan's Pan's Labyrinth, uh, like rewatching it now, and it's been a few years since I've seen it. Uh, I was actually a little disappointed in that it is just a story about how cool stories are. Okay, interesting. Because because that is a little trite. Like just you know writing writing a story about how cool stories are feels cheap. Um, that being said. As someone who does think stories are really cool, I thought it was. A, I still think it's a great movie, but uh, I think I think it's very clearly like the the moral, the theme of the movie is how important escapism is to uh, people, especially going through hard times. I mean, the movie literally lays that out for you in their opening. Like that opening parable about like the the flower of everlasting life and the thorns and everyone gets too busy talking about the thorns and we forget about the flower. We get too busy with work that we forget about the reward. Oh, the metaphor. Uh, so that's and the closing image of the flower as well, just in case you don't get it. <laughs> for those who know where to look, to quote the movie, <laughs> which is where the camera is pointed. Um, it's, it's, Sorry. No, that's no, great. Um, it's it's not a subtle movie. It's, it's not no, but that, it doesn't movie. have to be. Right. Like, I mean, like again, it it I I probably give the movie a bit more credit uh, than that. In that, I think it is like it's a movie about stories and it's a movie about fairy tales, but it's also a movie about memory and history and how we remember those things. And this yeah. is, I think, maybe getting at like Andrew's about to talk about the thorns surrounding the rose in a second. Well, no, no, the the just the 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 kind of to 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 what you both are saying in in the power of stories um not even just to 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 escape the world but also to, to understand, to, to understand it. it there's so mm. much that it kind of like a story can um uh, illuminate where um like the, the the um there's there's so much kind of like um allegories and parables that kind of can can can, can be timeless but sorry darren well, no, because because this is like, and and what's interesting about this is you have that contrast between the real world and the world of the story. And I mean, obviously, this is set in a very particular time in a very particular place. It is set in the Spanish Civil War, and in many ways, it recalls the movie that Del Toro himself cheatingly considers to be his first movie, The Devil's Backbone, which is technically his third movie, but who's counting? Um, which is similarly set in the Spanish Civil War. So it's like this is set in the aftermath. Devil's Backbone is set before. There are a lot of similarities between the two as well. They're both stories about children. They're both stories that are kind of fairy tale in nature. They both have characters who are of amputated legs, for example. They open with extremely similar shots, which are children dying, just in case you don't get that this is what this is about, this terrible thing where children died. Um, and the interesting thing about like the Civil War is that like <clears throat> this is very specifically chosen to be the aftermath of the Civil War and after the Civil War has been it's fought the, and after Franco has won. Still being fought, yes, yeah. yes, that that's it. But the the thing is like and, and Del Toro's talked about this, like what was important for him was that it was it was the specific moment where the Spanish Civil War was over and done and Franco had won and the audience would understand that like Spain was in for Franco's rule for decades after this. And also that it was in the gap before the Second World War had resolved itself. So you have like throughout you have like characters picking up newspapers and reading about the D-Day landing and stuff like that because it was important that this was a time where the Spanish resistance 
could hope that like the allies, the Americans, the British, the Canadians, like when they were done defeating fascism in Germany, they would cross the border and they would help defeat fascism in Spain. Mm. And it was important that it was like before that hope was completely gone is when this is set, even though, again, the audience understands that in this story, that's not going to happen. In this story, Franco wins. In this story, Spain remains a fascist regime for decades that follow. And I think what's interesting about this is that Del Toro comes back time and time again to the idea of fascism uh, in his movies. And I mean, it, it's it's not subtle, as, as as Jack pointed out. Um, he's, a, he's a director who likes to make his kind of thoughts clear. And mm-hmm. it's there in The Devil's Backbone. It's there. It's here. It's also there in Hellboy, which is literally about Nazis. It's there in The Shape of Water, which is about like McCarthyism in the United States as well. Um, it is is not a particularly kind of subtle metaphor that this kind of preoccupies him. And I think what's interesting about Pan's Labyrinth is it unfolds in a world where fascism has won, where the fascists won the civil war and they control Spain, basically. They control all the food, they control all the resources, they control the area. And the argument that Pan's Labyrinth makes, which is interesting, is the argument that not even the victor gets to set history. History is not necessarily written by the victor. It's written by whoever tells the best story Mm -hmm. so the fact that the fascists have won this war the fact that the fascists are not going to be defeated immediately doesn't mean that the fascists will win overall and it doesn't mean that stories have no value it doesn't mean that they control the narrative as long as you can tell a better narrative um, as long as you can tell a better story you will win uh, in the longest possible terms, perhaps. Sorry, Andrew. You yeah, no, I, I, I want to push back a little bit on the kind of lack of subtlety because, because like in 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 the film, we 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 have this kind of um, uh, children's fairy tale world, and we also have the real world. Now, in 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 the real world, you have these kind of like terrible villains in. Um, like the, the, the like Captain Vidal, like, who is a, a complete monster, who is arguably yeah, as much of a monster but, as ever existed. The, but the thing about Vidal, not to excuse him, but to contextualize him a bit, is that he exists in the in a context and an environment of uh, brutality. Like the, the, <laughs> la, la, later on in 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 the film, you kind of repeat scenes that you've seen with the nationalists murdering republicans where 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 the uh, republicans are kind of executing um nationalists and there's the same kind of execution style not not to not to equivocate them but um the way in which it's shot it, is similar and mirrors one another and stuff exactly, like that exactly yeah yeah and just the 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 kind of because they don't have to um kind of linger on that but they do they they and you hear and then you see them kind of shooting these people in the face um mm-hmm. so it it's it's i think it's more subtle than he is a villain but he he's is like in in the i think they call it the white terror in in Spain, where there, there was where there was like I think it was it looks yeah I I I looked it up earlier. There was like one hundred and sixty to two hundred thousand people killed, not just during the, the the civil war, but in the kind of repression afterwards. But they they, they it's also in the context of the um, what was called the Red Terror in in Spain. Yeah. They uh, where 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 they they don't know exactly, but uh, again, but it's like. It, 38 
between any anything up to like seventy two thousand people killed and like horrific um murders. So that that's the kind of uh context that Vidal exists in. So I I I think he he he's there's something kind of le- less even though he 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 is completely atrocious like um from beginning to end I I I feel like he's understandable in terms of the things that he wants you can kind of um maybe guess like wanting a legacy and also the his his lack of of humanity has a kind of a a um uh, perhaps an explanation if not an excuse I think these things come back to like the themes of the movie and what Del Toro is doing. So you have, for example, like this theme of kind of story and mythology that builds up. So you have this story that's told about his father and you have like the re- the recurring motif of the watch. So he's constantly fixing and repairing the watch from his father. Whenever he's on screen, there's the constant ticking that's happening in the background. And you have this idea, again, tied to the notion of like what time and history is versus what story is where like even Ophelia when she goes into the fairy world she has to race back before the last grain of sand runs out whereas uh, and you also have like Vidal is introduced saying oh they're already 15 minutes late um, because like time is important because his time is is finite the audience knows that he will only exist for a certain time but you also have him trying to by the way as as i was watching that scene i was realizing that i would be 15 minutes late for the podcast that's when you text yeah <laughs> that's when you text that and it's like that he's already 15 minutes late darren says checking the uh, message the, but uh, yeah and it, it's it, i i love the kind of um classical kind of pedigree that the the that the stories in the in in, in this film have um because that's what happens in kind of like mythology. You you kind of tell the same stories over and over. It's it's like um, kind of Persephone being um, kind of kidnapped to 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 Hades, where um, where she's about to be and brought. Orpheus back. and Ophelia sounds you know like again Orpheus and Ophelia. Mm-hmm. Like I suggest, I think that's not an accident that they're that close. Yeah, to another. yeah. Oh, but yeah. where 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 she eats the 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 pomegranate and then kind of has to herself and kind of her 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 mother um sorry i'm probably butchering but it, but it's the it's the greek kind of explanation for kind of like why we have six months of 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 winter and autumn that mm-hmm. that that is the time that persephone is in um hades um well she actually likes hades um there is so some kind of telling the story goes yeah 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 food's you great know, hedonism has its benefits i think like to <laughs> To to rope it back to like how subtle or unsubtle Pan's Labyrinth is, if I could, like, you know, one of the first interactions we have with Videl, our antagonist of the movie, is is that shot of him gripping our hero's hand way too tight. Like, it's obviously not full on child abuse, but it's like it lingers on that just long enough to make sure that everyone understands bad guy does bad things. Great. Like, yeah. It, it's it's very simplistic in its character setups, which I think it has to be because we go to fantastical places. And so it does a lot of good work early on. Mother's innocent in a bad place, but trying to do the right thing. Uh, Vidal, super bad guy all the time. And Ophelia is our hero. Like, like these are the stock characters. But uh, yeah, like like with, with characters like um, kind of like Mercedes, she, 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 she's... Um, protecting people and and mm-hmm. um, helping people. Um, she's also really vicious, you know. 
you know, um, the, the well, there's there's that difference between the world as Ophelia understands it and the world as Mercedes understands it, which I find is fascinating as well. And like the the idea that it's not a binary, it's not a clear delineation between the two, where Ophelia kind of understands what's going on. Where like there's a moment where I, Ophelia understands that like Mercedes is helping the rebels. They have the conversation where she says like, in, you know, have you told anyone? It's like no, because I want you to stay around. Mm-hmm. So even if Ophelia doesn't understand the exact context or meaning, right. she still gets some of it. Whereas Mercedes does exist in an adult world and is is much more as you point out much more violent much more graphic uh much more aware of the situation i think sure and i like i guess you know the all of mercedes violence is contextualized as how bad videl is you know like yeah like it's yeah. it's that classic like you, a hero can never incite the violence can only react to the violence and we've mm. seen videl be violent more uh, and f- more importantly, first. And so, like, everything that Mercedes does or everything that the mother does or any- even everything that the rebel does, we understand who the bad guys are within the context of the movie. Definitely, yeah. And, and just to, to bring it back to the whole fascism kind of story thing, it's notable that, like, the movie's ending is how you defeat fascism, how you defeat Fidel is the bit where, like, he's wandering out with his son. And he's like, tell my son that this is how I died. Mercedes is like, no, your son will never know who you were. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you defeat this monster by writing it out of the story, by not giving it space. That's right. Videl got cancelled. He did. He got, he got, like, hashtag can- Twitter just came in with a with a hammer ban on him. They took away um, his I mean, I, I didn't... Yeah, it was a big yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the, was, 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 the, the, there, there's, there's a kind of a... Um, what's the word? Uh, um, uh, oh, sorry. This is terrible podcast kind of... But it, it, is it an... an uh, a, a muerta... Kind of like like, like a, a a a a pact of kind of um for, forgetfulness kind of in 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 Spain at the moment where some people yes. want to know um details about um the past such as where their family buried what happened to them um and those sorts of questions but that they the that there's a kind of a an uneasiness in some quarters to kind of go digging into into the into the past i mean like you don't have to go to spain to see that no, no i mean we know like close enough to home like there are issues with people here who will never know where their relatives are mm-hmm. buried you know kind of um like it's a legacy of, of a kind of a war that is like a civil war that it will leave these sorts of scars and these things become unspeakable or unmentionable uh, but I, I do kind of find that aspect of the movie kind of interesting where the idea is that you transform or transmute these very real horrors into fantasy figures because like obviously everything in the fantasy world like translates indirectly in in some cases or directly in others into the real world that ophelia is navigating it's her way of understanding how the world works Mm -hmm. so you know instead of like mercedes smuggling the key out in order to like get the food from the storeroom she has the key to get the thing from the pale man Mm -hmm. the pale man sits at a feast much like you know Videl kind of sits at this like feast while people are starving uh, the idea that if she takes the dress she is somewhat compromised uh, much like if she takes the food she is somewhat compromised as well and if, even little things that are like really really and the idea obviously that like Videl or fascism is the frog that has taken hold of the root of the tree that is Spain and all this sort of stuff again not not very subtle but doesn't have to be that but even the even the most little... disgusting scene when the <laughs> When, <laughs> when the frog barfs up its own inside yeah. uh, amazing i think is what you mean it's to so say. good it's so good i mean i think the executives wanted it to be a laugh line but 
but um, <laughs> more fart noises. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's what You're we need. Bath. What if he burps <laughs> and, and like her hair blows and she says "pu"? That that's that's the moment right there. Um, but like, what what if instead of offering her these three stones, she offers her a breath mint? That's that's the oh, pitch. Oh, that's, 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 that's the moment we we fix the movie. Um, but no, like. But that sort of stuff is there. And I mean, but even more subtly, you have things like the shoe imagery where her mother tells her that she would have loved to have a dress like that if, when she was a girl. And she's given the dress to wear by her, her father and or by Videl. And you have the moment where like the shoes in particular are brought to the audience's attention. And then she goes and she visits the pale man. And the pale man has these piles of children's shoes from the children that he has slaughtered. And again... The way Del Toro does this, Del Toro is a really good director. There are several moments where the camera movement is just incredible, mm. where he will start a shot and end a shot perfectly. So I'm thinking of the moment where like the doctor and Mercedes go into the woods and they're talking and then the camera pans around and the rebels are just like moving through the foliage. It's like, oh, I didn't see them there. And there's a moment with the shoes where the camera pans like circles around the shoes and reveals the pale man and reveals like the fire behind him mm -hmm. and you you have like without directly evoking the holocaust you have this image of the nightmare of fascism which is the the shot of the shoes outside the chambers where these bought where these people were basically killed and and murdered mm -hmm. and without translating it directly without going to schindler's list or show or anything like that you you make that connection through fairy tale and allegory in a way that i think is is very beautiful and very clever like it's it's really really well made i think it's kind of the thing that i kind of oh it, no it absolutely is i think like my my the if if i were to nitpick um i think once we start delving into kind of the fairy tale as analogous to the real world that's where i could have used a little more connection uh, because like I mean you're you're absolutely right the the evil the evil military people have a buffet and then she has to go you know not eat food at the buffet with the pale man but I mean that's also like her not getting dinner before bedtime and yes, then you that's exactly then right. you can't have dinner at in your fairy tale imagination land that's her not wanting to wear a dress and then you know her dress gets all muddy because she's playing in the mud and her connection with the rebels I feel like could have been beefed up a little bit more in order to help make those connections super clear a really minor nitpick I do, I do think like del toro does it in the edit though i think you keep cutting between these things in a way that kind of makes these connections like again like he we, we pointed out like he's very controlling of his camera mm. so things like that final shot where he's like and then you know her legacy remains if you know where to look as a flower literally brooms in the center of the shot and there's no way you can miss it i think like he he makes it clear that it's like oh she's going into a tree to fight a frog that has taken root by the way there are also fascists riding through this forest in case you don't get what the what the frog represents um i i think it i i kind of give it credit for being kind of clear cinematically there. speaking yeah, okay, yes it's all narratively and thematically it's all well. super yeah. there but yeah just uh, just story wise i would have loved a few yeah. more connections but yeah i mean you're you're 100 right uh in the language of cinema she, the language of cinema less cinema she's just Try trying to prevent it. food from all that food from going to waste if you think about it yeah, that's the real yeah. plus she real she had a setting out for her and they need that <laughs> so um she kind of has to make that up in fairness vidal is a good guy because he doesn't just throw away that uh rabbit like as small as he, he has to make a stew and he finds it. he finds use for that bottle as well to He's be thrifty. fair yeah yeah <laughs> 
very efficient is, is what he is. Yeah, I, mean, I was like, watching him crush that guy's face with the bottle and I was thinking, <laughs> this guy's a real jerk, you know? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. He's a but bit of a then, bad... I feel like that's what Del Toro wanted to, you to take away from the scene, yes? Yeah. But then you um, think like, oh, but I bet he's going to reduce and reuse and recycle that bottle later. So maybe he's not <laughs> so much of a jerk, even though he just murdered two people in cold blood. Mm, it's, you know, it's balance. It's all about balance. Yeah, yeah, the, this... It's it's probably worth less, but I I guess the recycling people don't ask questions. No, um, they don't care where it comes no, from. No. I mean, you you hope that the staff kind of hose it down a little bit beforehand, sure, right? Sure. Um, you, you don't want to like that gunk is not recyclable on on, on the bottle. I think. No, I'm sure there's a sanitation process. Yeah, it's got to be some. We're pro recycling here. You you can trust that there will be no blood on your like reusable <laughs> bottles. Yeah. Uh, like. Uh, just I want to again because Del Toro is such a fascinating character and like one of the things is like when we're on this podcast and we're talking about directors um, there's always this tendency with directors when they're asked questions to be like I don't know what that means I haven't put any thought into it like the famous example of Steven Spielberg not understanding his own movies until James Lipton explains them to him or like saying I don't want to understand them because if I do I, I'll start interrogating the magic mm-hmm. or like David Lynch where you're like clearly this this object is a metaphysical representation of the evil that lurks inside us all and David Lynch's like no, I just saw a really cool thing when I was on holiday one time. I thought it would look good on screen. Yeah. If that's um, what it means to you, that's fantastic. Yeah. And then, the, yeah. and then they say, "Well, will you explain your reasonings behind this?" And he just goes, "No." <laughs> yeah, because, because you, yeah. he's already kind of done his bit. He, he, yeah. is, that, that, he is, my job is done. He's created he's something, but interpretation itself is then generative. Yeah, so you're creating process. something. You're mm. saying, yeah. like, you know, the the whale is a penis. The, um, sea the sea is a big is, boom uh, vagina. vagina. Yeah. yeah. Or sorry, the yeah. shark. I mean, this is. Yeah, the shark. Yeah, no, it's not Moby Dick. No, no. Um, oh, I do, love that, I do love that Andrew's argument is that Moby Dick is a dick. Um, I do appreciate that that's the kind of like logic that Andrew got at the point that we took it to there. So but no, like, Nemo. I mean, <laughs> sorry. Moby Dick is a dick. <laughs> um, it's been a while it's, since I've read it, it though. I, yeah, I, I, it's subtext. It's really, really, really subtext. Mm-hmm. Um, it's submarine text even one might say but to bring thank you my job here is done but but like del toro on the other hand because del toro he he studied in university and i think when he finished real hero darren (laughs) i I mean i try to be going in another direction (laughs) sorry um but like del toro he he studied like film and, and art in university and stuff like that and i think when he finished university he published his thesis as a book on like the films of alfred hitchcock dissecting like critically what hitchcock was doing and talking about why his films are masterpieces and why they work so i love that del toro and again like a mexican filmmaker is is more articulate in english without a translator than many like directors we talk about on this podcast where like you will ask del toro what something means and instead of saying as jack said well that's really for you to work out or for you know to go i haven't really thought about it just looked cool he will actually say i wanted to represent political power within the creatures del toro says and that particular cower the pale man somehow came to represent the church and the devouring of children the original design was just an old man who seemed to have lost a lot of weight and was covered in loose skin. Then I removed the face. So it became part of the personality of the institution. And then what to do about the eyes? So I decided to place stigmata on the hands and shove the eyes into the stigmata. Having done that, I thought it would be great to make the fingers like peacock feathers that fluff and open out. That is how that figure evolved. The fawn proved more difficult. The idea was just to make him very masculine, but not aggressively so, just sinuous. 
I remember talking to Doug Jones when he first started working on the role and saying, more Mick Jagger, less David Bowie. I wanted the phone to have a rock star quality. Everything about the phone and his personality needed to be masculine because you had to pit the female energy of the girl against something monolithic. And I love that it's like, yeah, no, I have I have put the thought in, I put the work in, and I'm going to show you that I put the work in. And that that reading right there proves why everyone should love Guillermo del Toro is yeah. because he puts in the work. He puts in the thought to his weirdo creepy monsters. And that's why I particularly love him. But like like showing the math is like here's how i here's how i solved for x here's all the process this is why it makes sense to me you want to read into if it whatever you do but here's how i got there i think that's so brilliant yeah, and like being introspective enough like because most right most most writers would just go i did it because it looked cool it was the idea in my head and then i made it happen that that's that's how it can, but del toro is like it was in my head and like you will read interviews and it'll be like yes most of my movies do take place underground i think psychologists would have something very insightful to say about that and it's like I know you've thought about this, Del Toro. Um, but like even, even things like, say, the, the Spanish Civil War stuff that we talked about, and like he's very particular about why it's set during the Spanish Civil War and very particular about why it's set, like why it's called a labyrinth, right? Because like obviously the labyrinth is a particularly potent image in Spanish culture because this is the thing. He is a Mexican director. Um, he describes himself as a Mexican in exile. He left his country in 1997 after his father was kidnapped and ransomed, which is, to be fair, a perfectly reasonable reason to do mm. so, and kind of set up in Spain. And like, this is a Spanish movie from a Mexican director and he knows the culture backwards. So like, he knows that like, in Spanish culture, the labyrinth is a metaphor for the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Gerald Brennan's, like, the Spanish labyrinth is one of the quintessential treatments exploring, like, the causes and factors at play. Hmm. And he's talked about how, for him, the labyrinth is a metaphor, because the idea is that, you know, and, and it, like, there's a really great line that I'll kind of find here, where he actually says, and it, it's it's amazing because it uses English in a way that even I, who was, like, born raised speaking English... Do, would not make this distinction, but he's like, no, this is a very carefully chosen word. A maze is a place where you get lost, he explains. But a labyrinth is essentially a place of transit, an ethical, moral transit to one inevitable center. You think of the transit of Spanish society from the 1940s to the incredible explosion of the post-Franco period. The 80s in Spain were like the 60s in the rest of the world. And I think actually we've had Anya O'Connor on our expert in Spanish cinema talk about this. In the movie, Ophelia is a princess who forgot who she was and where she came from, who progresses through the labyrinth to emerge as a promise that gives children the chance never to know the name of their father, the fascist. It's a parable, just like the devil's backbone was a parable of the Spanish Civil War. Um, so, like, that's the kind of thing that I find, like, even those details are things that he's thought about. It's like, no, the... The, the, the labyrinth is a metaphor for the state of Spanish society. As Andrew said, that balance you have between wanting to know the past and wanting to forget the past when it is that traumatic. Well, it's it's the effect of kind of, um, I guess, polarization as well. It's good. It, like, surprising nobody did. The, the, obviously, the Spanish Second Republic was characterized by polarization. And while they, they, they had a legitimate government, there was enough support for the, the, the kind of nationalists that there was the, the, the incredibly bloody civil war and then, as he said, kind of post-Franco, it was such a kind of a pendulum shifting the other yes, way, so. like a hyper kind of sexual revolution, 
which we did. I think Anya mentioned like donkey shows and stuff like that. That's what yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, like if 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 uh, we'll 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 have in our show notes all of the kind of we, lo- locations of Barcelona sex shows with donkeys. <laughs> Yes. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> I mean, that would be nice for research purposes. <laughs> Just to show hashtag show your work, um, but no, like, like I, I do think I do think that's kind of interesting that it like you have this idea of kind of like coming out and dealing with history and kind of myth making and telling that story because as, as Jack pointed out, this is a story that is largely about stories. Uh, and kind of before we move on or before we move off fascism. One of the things I do find because fascism is so hot right now, um, and I like Jack. Well, Jack made the joke there, <laughs> and Darren's like, "No, bring it back to the really hot stuff." Fascism. <laughs> um, <laughs> listeners, listeners are hopefully looking very confused right now. I want to know how many of them are into this weird conversation that we found this cross sense, this this center of the labyrinth that we have just discovered. Mm. But um, what I do find interesting in terms of like the movie's treatment of fascism is the idea of choice. Like, cause it's, it's a movie that is very adamantly engaged with the idea of choice and free will as being important. Cause like Andrew mentioned this, the idea of Vidal as somebody who while monstrous and horrific and brutal is a character who is defined as a character who is absent of choice. He is the way that he is because his father is the way that he was and because he follows orders. And you have this thing that happens throughout where he will like test people and he will tell them to obey him and to listen to him. Um, So you have like the conversation with the doctor, for example, where he's like, look, if you had just obeyed me, you the things would have gone very well you could have obeyed me it would have been better for you and you know it i don't understand why didn't you obey me and the doctor responds to obey just like that for the sake of obeying without questioning that's something only people like you can do captain and the structure of pan's labyrinth uh, which i really like is that it's about ophelia learning to make a choice for herself so like, the big thing is, and, and it's a moment that I imagine, like, a lot of viewers are frustrated with. It's the moment where she's told by the fawn what she has to do. Like, she's told, you need to go into this place, and you need to get the key, and you need to get the key in the lock, and take the thing from the lock, and whatever you do, do not eat anything from the table. And she chooses to eat something from the table, and it has horrific consequences. But that that is how choice works. You yeah. make a choice, sometimes it's a bad one. Um as, as anybody who has looked at any democracy over the past five years will attest. But well, no, usually it, at the end... Hold on, it, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm turning away in American. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's that the, the, the alternative to that is, is the 20th century kind of like fascism and communism marked by these kind of systems that treated people as a kind of a means to an end. And yeah. kind of as, as, as much as we kind of like... Um, a, a, problems that kind of like individualism or like the will of the people kind of um can um can surface um in in challenging ways um it's 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 kind of like look at the the alternative not that that's the only alternative to be clear is is eating eating food from the table of this of the pale man but no like i mean but the whole point is that like this then builds to the climax of the movie where the fawn tells her that she has to sacrifice the blood of an innocent to get to paradise and having promised to obey him in everything she cannot she says no i i won't do it i am making a moral choice as an individual that i will not and that is a choice that leads to her death pretty much 
but the movie's like, yeah, that was the that was the right choice, and that was important because it was her choice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I like the idea that to, to bring it back to to stories, the the theme that Jack suggests this is all about, the idea that agency is is the key thing here, and that's mm-hmm. why. That's why fascism is a bad story because nobody has any agency in it. And that's why um, Pedro by the wants way, to stay, for example. Why? Why? You know, his his the um, the conclusion of his story is that he needs to 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 go to France. Like that's the story that's been written for him, but that's not what he's he's going to do. Um, and I mean, again, like none too subtle imagery there. We're talking about like the moment where they derail a train. Like that's how they get the attention of the fascists mm-hmm. because the you know the the and it's not true but the old myth that the fascists make the train runs on time but the train is an object that moves on a track from A to B to C and the whole thing is the rebels disrupt the train and and therefore cause confusion for the fascists as well. Um, all right then, in terms of, of Pan's Labyrinth, is there anything we haven't talked about? Anything jumping out at Jack or Andrew? Anything we want to talk about? Whether it's scenes, characters, beats, themes, anything? Um, the, the Vidal Vidal offers a cigarette to. Um... The uh, uh, stuttering, the stuttering, but it, it would be inappropriate for the, that soldier to accept that cigarette. Uh, so that's the obligatory inappropriate smoking in so a two fifty movie. <laughs> 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 I love that every time we have a new guest on, we have to explain that there are these recurring. Tro- We've noticed that in the two fifty movies, there's a weird tendency towards a inappropriate smoking and b food waste. Those are apparently mm. the cornerstones of what make movies great. It's not performance. It's not direction. It's not theme. It's the presence of inappropriate smoking and food waste. Mm. You know, he does smoke a lot. He's very uh, Vidal <laughs> is very interested in good tobacco. Yeah, yeah, and, and like Real he he, he will give his tobacco. Like he tells Mercedes, "All you have to do is ask, and I would share yes. my tobacco with you." That's how you important know? the tobacco is to me. It has many lines dedicated to the tobacco. So you're right there, and all that food that's just sitting by the pale man is just sitting there. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm I'm in with you. This is the greatest <laughs> conspiracy theory I've ever heard. <laughs> I love the moment when he's drinking the the whiskey and it really hurts, and then like immediately he pours another one. Because, yeah. well, they, they... and again, like the the motif of the mouth, which is is what mouth is. And again, to bring it back to every every two fifty movie being about food waste, and also this movie being about storytelling, the mouth is used to tell stories and to narrativize, and is also used to consume. So you have the pale man mm-hmm. eating, and like, and again, nice subtle visual storytelling. When he when she goes to visit, when Ophelia goes to visit the pale man, he snacks on the fairies first. He grabs them in the air and he tears them with his teeth. And you could argue that's a metaphor for comparable to when they're at dinner and uh, they're telling the story about how, like, how Ophelia's mother met Vidal and he cuts her off. Mm -hmm. He's cutting off her story there. And when they start telling the story about his father and the smashed watch, he cuts off that story as well. So he kills two stories Uh at that dinner table, much like the pale man eats two fairies and consumes them. And the idea that cutting his, his cheek and his mouth is comparable to that because that's you know, removing his ability to consume and to tell his own narrative story. If Del Toro Maybe didn't being... say this, it's not true. No, no. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think it is at all coincidental that the person who ends up with his story literally erased has his storytelling device mutilated a few scenes beforehand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, I absolutely. don't think that's a coincidence at all. Somewhere Del Toro's listening to this podcast going, that the piece, the final piece of the puzzle finally falls Someone into place. Someone finally gets <laughs> it. Finally <cracked> it. Um, <laughs> 
And what I will say, actually, what I, I think is interesting, um, again, there's a nice feminist undercurrent running through here as well, which is arguably very true to to a certain Reconstructionist reading of fairy tales, like things like the Red Riding Hood, for example, you know, with the, the wolf and, and all that sort of stuff. But here you have the idea of like women and particularly how women are viewed uh, by the societies in which they find themselves. Mm-hmm. And you have little moments like Ophelia, like Ophelia talked about her mother being sick with baby. Um, and the idea that what makes Fidel monstrous is that he wants a son and will happily sacrifice his wife if you have to choose between the two. Mm-hmm. But even things like uh, Mercedes, um, for example, like managing to get so much past Fidel because you're just a girl, you're just a woman. And she actually like explains to him, that's how I was able. And like, not only that, like in that scene, like while he's monologuing and after she has explained to him that he keeps underestimating her because she's a woman, Mm -hmm. she manages to free herself from her bonds, stab him twice and tear out his jaw. Which again, I kind of like in terms of like reinforcing the themes of the movie, literally like stabbing them with a a point. Listen, the fact that the, the, the the fact that Mercedes has her own life outside of this story and we know what that life is, is remarkable by modern Hollywood standards. Like yes. a woman has a world outside of our main character. Uh, that's that's unheard of. <laughs> Yeah. And again, even the small thing of the, like, again, the knife, like, it's such good visual storytelling from Del Toro. He keeps showing you her secreting the knife away yes. so that it comes into play during the third act. It's very basic cinematic story, but I absolutely kind of love it. Because They had the uh, Chekhov's kind of, like, pipette as well with the... <laughs> Like only two drops, and oh, right? <laughs> no, it's it's great setup and payoffs, uh, but uh, also from a like setups and payoff on a pure visual sense. And I yes. I say this with all sorts of respect that Del Toro does not want to fart around and have you miss it. So like when the drops go in the water, the camera is right up there. Look at the drops going in the water. It makes her sleepy now. Remember that. <laughs> this will be useful later. There will be a test on this. Also, the pale man represents the church. Um, <laughs> no, and I don't think like I, I do think that like subtext is for cowards to uh, <laughs> To paraphrase some fine filmmakers, like, I think it's great that Del Toro is confident enough in his own ability to, like, to just push the camera in and say, this is what I'm trying to say, you idiots. So- <laughs> And, and and to give a shout out here, this is this is something that um, Paul Julian Smith noted in Film Quarterly. I didn't pick up on this myself, but mm. I quite like it, is the fact that the entire movie takes place inside. And again, a set that was built to Del Toro's specifications. So not an accident, but it takes place inside what is clearly a windmill that has had the like mill itself removed, has had the wings removed, um, deprived of the giant sails, suggesting Don Quixote, Don Quixote, the classic Spain's national narrative, as it were, as well. And the idea that, like, you can... People who are far more knowledgeable than I have noted that, like, Del Toro steals sequences, like, wholesale from classic Spanish films, like The Spirit of the Beehive, which is where you get the sequence of her repairing the statue um, outside the village, which is another story set during this I love how much attention he has. And also, again, maybe this is just because I watched the two films really close together, but I couldn't get out of my head how similar this is to, like, Spirited Away, yes. which was released, obviously, six years earlier. But, like, the the Thinking start of the movie that. is so similar. 
um, with the character again, and this classic fairy tale beginning, the stone. like taken out of taken out of their like driven to a place, to a new school, mm-hmm. to a new world, uh, having fantastical elements intrude in. But yeah, things like the strange stone statue at the side of the road feels eerily specific in terms of like a reference to a story you're about to get about a character moving between the real and the fantastical it's, world. It's a much more harrowing my neighbor Totoro. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. It's a bit bit of grave of the fireflies to be fair. Um, it's the double feature crammed together. Sorry, <laughs> oh no no I think I, just a, that anime note like you know triggered something in my brain that I wanted to mention specifically is when we get into like kind of our thesis statement for the movie the story of the flower and the thorns you know the camera drops into the mother's belly to show the the baby the the the, the unborn child within the womb um, and that seem that is a, a seamless cut into the baby pull out to see like the flower and the thorn is like oh obviously a ton of special effects a ton of gorgeous looking special effects and this is the kind of like anime adaptation that i want this is the kind of filmmaking that i want uh where we are comfortable with surrealism where we are comfortable you know cutting into the belly to see the baby that's what i love Um, sorry, I, I couldn't help hearing that in the Werner Herzog voice. I would like to see the baby. I would like to see the baby. What we um, want to see now is inside the baby. <laughs> we uh, cut inside the heart of the baby. Um, and and then, like, and, and uh, before we go, I think obviously worth giving a shout out to Doug Jones, who plays both the fawn and the pale man. Obviously a big collaborator um, of Del Toro. They'd worked together on Hellboy, uh, where he played Abe Sapien, the character. I love that David Hyde Pierce, who voiced Abe Sapien in Hellboy, was like, my, perf- my, my contribution to this performance is so minuscule and pointless that you should just get him to do the voice next time round. And like Del Toro's like, yeah, sure, fine. Um, it was nice working with you, David Hyde Pierce, but uh, yeah, I will, I will get him to do that. It, um, it was noticeable in, in Hellboy 2. Okay. For, for me, it, because it was, uh, and I'm a big fan, Frasier fan, so maybe that's part ah, okay. of it. Is like w- without David Hyde Pierce, the marriage was it wasn't it wasn't as perfect as it was. That's just a small Hellboy tangent. That's that's what that's why Hellboy Two is slightly lesser for you. It, Absolutely, it's kind of missing the the, the scrambled 100%. eggs. Um, but like the thing I love about like Pan's Labyrinth is that Del Toro. Like, was so eager to have Jones in the movie. He's like, yeah, you're the only actor because you are the creature guy. Mm-hmm. Like, Jones has always been the creature guy. He was back, I think, Hocus Pocus was one of his first roles playing the zombie there. He's now on Star Trek Discovery playing Lieutenant Saru mm-hmm. because he's one of, he's this very tall, skinny man who is very, very good at movement. His movement is absolutely, if you watch him move in, in anything, he's incredible. Um, and obviously he was the fish. And I mean, look, I'm not going to shame Sally Hawkins for wanting to get a bit of Doug Jones in her life. Um, oh, okay. Jack has something he wants to add here, I think. I would like to make it very clear that I'm not shaming that lady for fucking the fish. You can do whatever you want <laughs> as long as it's consensual. It's consensual, yes. That's... But as as I had mentioned, uh, Del Toro does a really great job of showing the math in Pan's Labyrinth, and I feel like a few equations were missing as to why she wanted to fuck that fish. This is a specific thing that maybe Del Toro doesn't want to own up to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why is this not obvious to everyone? Yeah, <laughs> it's like somebody asked him, so why, what is it about that fish that she's just drawn to? And it's like, 
Haven't you ever wanted to have sex with a fish? <laughs> Just thought it was a universal human experience. That fish. Really. That's a sexy yeah, fish right there. Yeah. Is he that, that like I mean, sexy mermaid in the lighthouse? And um, yeah, dude, dude. was it? <laughs> that, that that the joke from Futurama, where like Fry like meets a sexy mermaid and then runs away from their honeymoon, screaming, "Why can't she be the other kind of mermaid? You know, with the fish part on the top and the lady part on the bottom." Um, <laughs> but sorry, um, but to bring it back to Doug Jones, a fantastic segue that we have here. Mm-hmm. Um, like the thing about Jones, and I kind of love this, is that like Del Toro is like, "You're, I want you in Pan's Labyrinth. You have to play this role." And Jones is like, "I don't speak Spanish. Uh, I am an American actor." And he's like, "Look, you can just, just, just count to ten, and I'll dub it. You're in the movie anyway. Yeah, you're the only one who can play the fawn. You can count to ten for all I care. I'll dub it over later." And what's interesting about Jones is Jones, to his credit, phenomenal performer, learned his lines phonetically learned Ophelia's lines phonetically so that he would know when to respond to them. And also because the headpiece that he was wearing was so thick with latex, discovered he would have to lip read Ophelia's lines in Spanish in order to respond to them. Now, he did insist on being overdubbed and he was overdubbed. But the actor who came in and did the voiceover was like, yeah, I, he did what he did was very clever because it means that his lips are moving the way that they should be moving when I'm actually reading the lines with the intonation. Yeah. So I think like Jones like deserves a real shout out there for the work that he did because that's that's staggering. And the English dub was David Hyde Pierce. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on on Netflix, I don't know, I don't know uh, other mm. formats, but on Netflix there is no other dub. There is no overdub option, which I think is phenomenal because, like, oh no, this is the only option uh, we have. We have what? Oh, <laughs> what was I going to say? Uh, no, like, and also, like, we should make sure we like Doug Jones. I feel like gets uh, gets cast under the table when we talk about like our modern age of motion capture. You know, uh, F and Smeagol gets all the love, no love for Doug Jones, and it's like they were both part of this kind of revolution of people who act with their body and as someone who uh, can't speak very well a lot and does weird stuff with my body to get my point across i am so down with them you've an incredible body jack first of all thank you <laughs> we, we don't normally say we don't normally say that on the podcast yeah. it makes guests uncomfortable. feel like we can get away with it. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> it's an audio medium baby audio medium uh, i um, was flexing right. my big muscles that's what i was doing right there my big big yeah. muscles jack, jack doesn't have biceps he has triceps ladies and gentlemen um all right then so i know nothing about basic biology <laughs> I think those are both muscles of those are movie. both muscles <laughs> yeah triceps Rodol, he is okay. He he has all of them, ba- ladies and gentlemen. Biceps, triceps, quadriceps on your legs. That's Quint- a- okay, he's got quinticeps. There we then. go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, got there eventually. A long walk for not a lot of water, but we got there eventually. Um, all right, so Jack, Andrew, anything we haven't talked about already with Pan's Labyrinth? Anything jumping out at you? Anything you think merits kind of discussion, or even just Del Toro, or whatever? Anything jumping out? Uh, uh, you know, my, my wrap up thought is, is kind of where I started this, which is I want Del Toro to uh, like, I, I want, uh, I, I want this to be the old system, uh, like back in Mozart's days where just like the richest people give artists money because they want to hear cool. It's, so it's like, uh, Bezos, Gates, uh, you know, whoever else is out there, just give Del Toro money to keep making weird 
like he he made like that animated DreamWorks show, like Troll Hunters or whatever, just just because he felt like making some weird cartoons. Like keep doing it. Uh, I uh, yeah, I I like all of his weird stuff, and I hope I hope he continues doing it Get forever him to, and ever. To create a theme park on Mars. <laughs> oh, I like it. For when we get um, there. Yeah. Now, now, to be fair, th- that being a Del Toro project, he would probably give up halfway through, and it would have to be completed by Peter Jackson, um, and would be like at least two movies too long. To be fair, you still know, um, and Doug Jones is like, "Come on." <laughs> <laughs> Doug Jones is like, "I don't speak Martian," um, but uh, uh, and in terms of yeah, just. Because there are so many Del Toro stories, one more for the road. I like the story of how he met Caron, Alfonso Caron, the other one of the three amigos. Uh, They met in 1987 when they were working on a Mexican television series called La Hora Marcada. It was an episodic thing like the Twilight Zone. We used to call it the Toilet Zone because the budgets. I remember right after I did my first one, Caron says, this freak walks into my office and says, you're Caron, right? I'm Guillermo del Toro. I saw your show and it was a ripoff of a Stephen King story. I started laughing and said, you're the only guy who figured it out. And del Toro's response was, yeah, but your show still stunk. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I love del Toro. Our our kind of, our, the the kind of Mexican film Santa Claus slash Hobbit creature that like, he's just fantastic. Oh, I, I should say as well um, uh, that like a lot of the performances were good, but I'll I'll single out um, Ivana Baguero, who um, who played Ophelia. I'm not sure if she's been in that much since that we that would be kind of like visible to us, but um, I thought she was tremendous in this. And child actors like can ruin movies, yeah. so. <laughs> Yeah, um, particularly when they're this central as well, because yeah. like this this movie lives or dies by Ophelia, and it's always a tragedy um, when 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 it like when a child is cast and it's not their fault, you know, where they're bad, like like where where people hate Jake Lloyd yes, to the point that yeah. he doesn't want to ever do anything again, like um, uh, in yeah. movies. Um, and like, I mean, it's worth noting, by the way, that like when she auditioned, the the part was, I think, originally written for an eight or nine year old girl. And Del Toro loved her so much in the role, he wrote her age upwards, uh, which I thought was quite nice as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and just one more thing in terms of like specific references as well, just because I'm glancing through my notes here. Uh, it's worth noting, by the way, that the film's open, well, the, the opening sequence of the flashback. So the bit after the film opens by telling you that Ophelia is going to die, which I quite admire in terms of just being bloodly fatalist. Blood going back into her nose. Yeah, but I think the like you're meant time. to get. I think you're kind of meant to get from like context that like yeah this movie this is not going to end well. It's more like the movie's going to take you back to explain why the blood is coming out of her nose rather than oh it's okay the blood's going back in it's fine she'll be fine it's just a nosebleed mm-hmm. um she's just got to inhale it there. But it is worth noting that the opening sequence after that the the sequence of the flashback mm-hmm. features them driving through the town of Bilchet, which is a town in the northern Spanish province of Zaragoza. Uh, which was destroyed during the Spanish Civil War and left standing per orders of General Francisco Franco as a warning to those who would stand against him as well. So I I, I kind of find it interesting. The movie's like themes are there from the outset, which is this idea the Civil War is already over and these monuments are left standing and this mythology is being cultivated. And again, the idea that you, you don't let the fascists win 
by just telling a better story, by creating a better mythology, because labyrinths are far cooler than dead cities in the north of Spain. Um, all right, then. So what we normally do at the end of podcasts is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners. So something you're enjoying at the moment. It'd be something related to the movie we just discussed, something completely unrelated, just something that is bringing you joy, making you smile, and you think listeners might enjoy. So to give Jack a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, I'll, I'll say if... Um... If you're watching this on Amazon, I didn't realize it was on uh, TV because I had a look, but I had written down a few kind of things that are good on Amazon because there's a lot of things that aren't good. Um, like um, uh, Sicario, um, a, a tremendous movie, some fantastic. Denny Villeneuve, yes. Denny Villeneuve. My favorite Denny Villeneuve. <laughs> Any, enough, anything is... by Denny Villeneuve is a fantastic <laughs> movie. He's, he's, he's so competent. He's so good. <laughs> The um, I I like his movies. <laughs> like, but I I always think of that. Like the more, Darren. I'm, I'll, men- I'll mention another Denny Villeneuve movie um, that's also on Amazon. It's Blade Runner twenty forty nine. That I thought was really kind of profound. I I liked it more than um, than uh, Blade Runner. And I, I, I recently saw the worst version, the 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 um, <laughs> the TV version. Yeah, of yeah, with the with the with narration. The, oh with the no! Narration. And I, yeah. I, f- I feel like it, it's it's a movie like 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 I do quite like Ridley Scott and and the kind of world that he creates. Um, but I I think like Rucker Howard kind of saves that movie, um, a little bit. And 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 that, wow. that like that 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 was kind of um. A lot of his own kind of nothing uh, but sacrilege creation. up in here. I, I'm, 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 I'm not sorry. <laughs> and 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 and, <laughs> and I also recommend. You should never regret Rian. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy is another one on on um, on on Amazon. I love the kind of remoteness of it, like the 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 silence of some scenes and, and how it's the how, Alfredson version, isn't it? Yeah. The, 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 yeah. Um, sorry. Thomas Alfredson is yes, yeah, yeah, but it, it, with the um, kind Gary of Oldman. long shots yeah. um, in that it just makes everything feel so kind of like you know uh, lonely. Yeah, exactly. And um, in terms of other stuff, we mentioned obviously this is uh, Pan's Labyrinth in um, in English, um, and we uh, I think I mentioned Persephone. We also mentioned how the podcast is never going to end, uh, which kind of goes back to Sisyphus. Mm. A book that I read that's that's not particularly like taxing, um, uh, that I I feel like a child could probably read it was uh, Mythos by uh, Stephen Fry, which is a kind of a retelling of um, Greek mythology. Not all Greek mythology because it wouldn't probably be possible, but the the um, the creation myths and the um, kind of. Olympian gods and their metamorphoses and, and, and those sorts of things. I found it very interesting. Um, and in, 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 in terms of fantasy, I might recommend some um, Terry Pratchett stuff that I've been reading late, uh, lately. So N- Night Watch and uh, Making Money were ones that I uh, recently read. I think and, the only thing you're enjoyed. missing then is Daddy Issue movies. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, probably, I've probably recommended too much. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, there, 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 there you go. Those are some things that I've been enjoying, enjoying lately that I thought about when we were when I was watching the movie and, and when we were discussing it. Uh, and Jack, what about yourself? What do you recommend for this? Uh, I just got done reading a, a phenomenal book. If you're if you're watching Pan's Labyrinth and you know need some more horror in your life, uh, The Year of the Witch. Uh, which is a, a lovely, you know, old timey, witchy, a lot of blood and, you know, like uh, so much blood that it's uh, drowning out the farms kind of movie. A uh, nice spooky movie, uh, or I'm sorry, a uh, nice spooky book, uh, if you're looking for that. Uh, I'm going to go in a completely different direction. As I was talking to Darren about before we were recorded, I actually had some free time the other day and was able to just choose movies to watch that I enjoyed, and I rewatched both Palm Springs and Groundhog Day back-to-back. Uh, back. Yeah. And what a delight those two movies are, uh, especially back-to-back, back, kind of picking apart the different way that they handle the time loop. Uh, Groundhog Day holds up. So shockingly good. well tremendously well i was really worried that it was going to be rapey and it, it's not as rapey as you think it's going to be uh and and it's from... no about time oh i don't know that one okay oh, no, um, that's, that's donald Deason and rachel mcadams um <laughs> rachel mcadams it's like, don't, it's like they, I, i've heard some people like, I say donald that Leeson. it's yeah, i love donald Deason, but like He's not a romantic lead when you put him in that situation. It's funny. I've heard people say that, that like it is ludicrous that like Donald Gleeson is um, is uh, in in this movie kind of um, uh, seducing uh, Rachel McAdams and that he could only do it by tricking her, which is kind of what the movie is about. But like lots of people um, think Donald Gleeson is fine. It's like Benedict Cumberbatch. Know, Some people kind of like, like combination. Yeah, I know. But like casting Benedict Cumberbatch and say Atonement as you have to bite it uh, works because that's his very particular kind of energy. Mm. Um, you know, like Donald Gleeson. If you're doing that, you need the energy of somebody like Bill Murray or like Tom Hanks. The energy of Donald Gleeson with that premise does not. Oh right, to me, at like, least like Groundhog Day. Listen, a- Andy McDowell is out of Bill Murray's league. Like, let's be honest, she's America's sweetheart. He's great, but way out of his league. But he makes up for it with kind of a natural charisma. No, I'm not saying. And he's that. believable. Exactly, and you know, like he has that confidence to get over the fact that he's kind of a chud. Now, Donald Gleason, you know, just doesn't. He has more of that nervous energy where you feel like more. He's more of a creeper. It, it's such a difficult. Do you know what? what, the, what do you know what the like the other big Donald Gleason romantic like thing is? It's that episode of Black Mirror where Haley Atwell orders a replacement robot for her boyfriend, and it is Donald Gleason. That's that's the level of romantic energy that you have. I don't think that's Donald Gleeson. I think that's Is Rory, that right? Is, Ooh, isn't that Rory from Doctor Who? Okay, well, uh, you guys can continue recommending stuff, and I will get back to you in a moment. I believe so. And, and you know, that could just be my brain uh, making Darren weird connections. It's visiting the fact machine. I am indeed. <laughs> yes. So no, no but and that, you're you're so right about those two movies. They're tremendous. <laughs> Treme- <laughs> tremendous movies Sorry. and you know just lighthearted, good comedies and uh yeah uh, so I, I rewatched them the other day and i uh, very rarely as we discussed earlier it's very rare to me to just pick a movie to watch uh for my own personal enjoyment that i won't talk about on a podcast so there watch rewatch those darren what have you found uh it was donald gleason it was donald <gasps> it gleason. was yeah like rory from doctor who arthur darville also has that energy to be fair 
Um, there's a reason why he had to spend those thousand years outside the box. Mm, that's true. Um, it's yeah. very true. Uh, in terms of, of recommendations for myself, uh, other Guillermo del Toro movies, um, which are great, which I also really appreciate if I don't entirely love them. Uh, in particular, I think Crimson Peak is, is criminally underrated uh, mm. as a kind of a gothic story. Uh, and I will, um, The Devil's Backbone, which is very much feels like a rough draft of this as well. And Blade 2, because, well, hey, it's it's a movie where Hell a guy yeah. rides a motorbike with samurai swords, so why wouldn't you want to watch it? Yeah. Um, and I, I will double down as well on the recommendation of Palm Springs, which was the Mooney family Christmas movie this year and went down really well with all of the target demographics. Nice. Uh, so it's just a hit across the board. Um, and then one more thing, or two quick things, because we're kind of wrapping up here, and also because like this movie's got, this is coming out in November. Oh, um, before you do, I just remembered Ghosts of Spain. That was it in another book I wanted to recommend. It's it, it's a book that kind of covers um, Spain in not all, but a lot of its different kind of like aspects, and it covers like a lot. Of, it it's 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 a foreigner going to Spain, kind of like you know learning about it. But um, one of the things that it covers is like the civil war and some of the things we've already mentioned. But um, no, I'd meant I'd meant to recommend that it's written by uh, Giles Tremlett. Apologies. No worries. And because this is a fantasy movie that kind of blends reality and imagination, uh, and because Andrew already mentioned the difficulty in trying to synthesize Greek mythology into a single cohesive narrative by uh, Stephen Fry. Two quick recommendations in terms of Arthurian lore. Um, if you are in the States, um, The Green Knight has been available on streaming for a couple of months now. If you're in the UK or Ireland, it will be available on Amazon Prime from late September, early October. Um, I really loved The Green Knight. I thought it was fantastic. thought it was beautiful. I think it was fantastically made. Uh, a fantastic study of the hero's journey. And uh, I recently rewatched John Borman's Excalibur, which is a movie that is completely insane. Um, and I am so glad that it exists, even if I have no idea what I make of it. Uh, it is an attempt to dis- it's an attempt to distill the entire Arthurian canon down to a like two hour movie. It's like five separate movies and like all of the things that it does to like smooth the narrative just raise more questions because mm-hmm. it's like, OK, where did Arthur come from? Let's talk about his father. And I'm like. Wait, but what's his father's deal? Because his father clearly has a deal. It's uh, it's like, no, we don't have time to get into that, but we, we're going to tell you about his dad. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but explain his dad to me, please. Um, But yeah, so I would wholeheartedly recommend that. All right, then. So if people are looking for a bit more Jack online, where can we find you? Watch up to what you're doing. So many places. Uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, at Harlack. Uh, I, uh, you can hear me talk about very bad movies over at redlettermedia.com. Occasionally, you can hear me talk about video games and sometimes good movies or middling movies over at escapistmagazine.com. And if you're ever in the Milwaukee area, most weekends I perform live theater over at Comedy Sports. Uh, I've always wanted to ask this, actually. Um, right. what is Har- where does Harlack come from? Like what is that? I've been curious about that. Oh, and how is it spelled? Yes. Just in case anyone's putting it true different. Um. It's spelled H A R L A C K. Uh, the story is very adorable and very embarrassing. So I will tell it, uh, which is um, um, I, I've never had a nickname, so I'm just Jack. My wife, who uh, I have been dating since high school, uh, her nickname is Harl after Harley Quinn, as she is a big comics person. And her and her friend group had, you know, uh, DC character nicknames. Uh, fun little side story. Her sister wasn't into comic books, so they gave her the nickname of Biff, as in Biff Bam Pow. Uh, so she's Harl. I'm Jack. When we lived together, uh, to give you an idea of how long we've been together, uh, email started to become a thing. 
uh, when we when we lived together. And I thought that email was going to work the same way that regular mail did, where both uh, my girlfriend at the time and I would <laughs> share an email. So I made us an email that we could both use, Harl and Jack, Harlack. And then she, after I said, oh, I made us an email. Don't worry, hon. She goes, that's not how email works, you idiot. And I said, okay, great. So, and I just kept it because that's the one that I made. So, <laughs> uh, so it's H-A-R-L-A-C-K. Correct. Perfect. All right. You can follow the podcast. That's 250. We're available on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, wherever good podcasts are not sold. Write us uh, a review. Next... Write us. Yes. Five stars. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I am terrible at signing off this thing. But yes, um, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please feel free to leave a review. Um, somebody suggested in the range about five stars might be a good five, review. Yeah. yeah five, yeah, I don't think it is enough. possible to give it like four stars. Don't like don't try to give it like four, three, two, one. It'll um, you'll, you'll have to go back to the whole beginning. And yeah. Yeah just i think it's yeah you know but yeah if you if you do like it please please share help get the word out um again we're just thrilled anybody seems to enjoy this podcast at all but if, <laughs> if you do help share the word <laughs> that is I'm honest surprise that's not modesty as well like Jack. <laughs> no, we, yeah yeah we, like we do have great guests but that's myself true. and andrew as hosts are very yeah you're really carrying you are actually carrying we're not we're not joking um <laughs> But yeah, so no, if you do, feel free to share, feel free to rate, review, subscribe. It helps get the word out there, helps get people, uh, helps more people discover the podcast as well, which is, is fantastic. Uh, we'll be back next week where hopefully the wonderful Stacey Grad and the fantastic Joe Griffin will be joining us for a discussion of Ridley Scott's Gladiator. So will we be Gladi Watchter? That's the question. Join us next week. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you click, so much. Click that Jack. star rating like fingers <laughs> through the amber waves of weed. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I asked. I'm glad I asked them to review before I, I landed on that one. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Jack. Oh, Thanks geez. for having me. Bye. No, our, our pleasure. Bye. Bye. Bye.